one word that seems to be universally associated with Christianity is the word faith. When we refer to Christianity, we refer to it at times as the Christian faith. When we refer to Christians, we refer to them as men and women of faith. And when we refer to Christian organizations, we at times refer to them as faith-based organizations. While those terms are common to us, there are few who understand what that word faith means biblically. What do we mean when we refer to someone as a person of faith? Or what do we mean when we talk about a faith-based organization? What does that word faith mean? Some believe it means being optimistic that things are going to work out. They speak of being hopeful of certain things, wishful, having faith that certain things will happen. For example, maybe you're, you're hopeful for good weather this next weekend. You're, you have faith that it won't rain. Many, many define faith in that way, being optimistic. Some view it as this force that one can use to activate and alter certain things in life. Many of us parents, we have noticed in our kids' TV shows and in Disney movies, at times kids will be encouraged to just believe with all your heart. If you believe something strong enough, you can achieve it and you will receive it. Is that what we mean when we talk about faith biblically? Now, here's a very simple definition of faith from Scripture. Faith is believing in what God has said because He has said it. Faith is when you take God at His word and you trust that He is going to do what He says He is going to do and you live accordingly regardless of the circumstances and how they may change because of who God is and what He has done. The author of Hebrews in that great chapter on faith, Hebrews 11. You'll read it this week in your scripture reading. In verse 1, he says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is the, the biblical definition of faith. It's being confident, being sure that God is going to do what He says He is going to do because He said He is going to do it. Regardless of the circumstances, you believe God is going to do what He promised because of who He is and what He has done. It's having an assurance of things hoped for, being convinced of things you have not seen because you believe in God's Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, we are looking at verses 37 through 45 this morning, continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, and we are approaching a pivotal point in the book. In the next few weeks, we are going to arrive at Luke 9.51. And in that verse, we're told that, that Christ's focus shifts from His ministry in Galilee 
toward Jerusalem. We have spent the majority of our study in the Gospel of Luke in up to this point focusing in on Christ's ministry in Galilee. But in Luke 9.51, Luke tells us, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is, is getting ready to set his sights toward Jerusalem, and you, many of you know the work that, that he is going to do there. There he will be betrayed and arrested and denied and tried and beaten and hung between criminals on a criminal's cross. And we are told that the reason he goes to Jerusalem to die in this way is to die in our place in order to accomplish our salvation. And Jesus has been telling his disciples of this work that he is going to do for a while now. We, we learn in Luke 9, 22, he tells them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he's been telling his disciples of this work and he's getting ready to set his sights toward Jerusalem to go and accomplish this work. But before he leaves the area of Galilee and while he is on the path to Jerusalem and before arriving in Jerusalem, Luke shares with us some lessons that Jesus shows and shares with his disciples along the way. One lesson is a lesson on faith. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. In this passage, Jesus shows his disciples the importance of faith. He gives them an important lesson on faith. And the reason why is because they lived in the midst of and were influenced by a faithless and godless and twisted generation. Folks, I pray this morning that you see that that's where we find ourselves as well. Jesus' words certainly apply to us this morning. Luke 9. Again, we're going to be looking at verses 37 through 45. This morning we're going to be studying, here's the title of the sermon, Jesus' important lesson of faith to a faithless and twisted generation. And we are going to learn this lesson of faith by examining the marred ministry of Christ's disciples, the majestic ministry of God's Son, and the marvelous mystery of God's gospel. Before we begin with this story, let me remind you again of where we are because the, the story we looked at last week goes along with the story today. That story just flows right in to this one. In fact, in Luke's timeline, the story we're going to look at today takes place a day after the events we looked at last week. Look at Luke 9.37. We're told on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. So again, we see this event here, it takes place on the heels of Jesus' transfiguration. Last week, 
We discussed the fact that the inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they go with Jesus in the region of Galilee up on a mountain and there they get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. There they, they see Him in all His beauty and His glory and we're told that Elijah and Moses show up and they're focused in on Jesus and the work that He is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And then Peter, James, and John, they hear the voice of the Father as well. And he says this of his son. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We said last week that, that God wanted the focus of his disciples. He wants our focus on his son, Jesus Christ. He wants us to look to him and listen to him and follow him to place our faith and trust in him. And the reason why is because the world is broken and man is faithless and twisted. We need the voice of Christ to listen to. We need the person of Christ to believe in and follow. We need the work of Christ applied to us. We need the strength of Christ in us so that we can live by faith and please God in this twisted and faithless generation. Jesus' disciples had yet to understand this. That's the reason for the lesson here. Notice point number one, the marred ministry of Christ's disciples. Notice the contrast between the glorious details of Luke chapter 9 verses 28 through 36 and the horrific details of Luke chapter 9 verses 37 through 39. Look beginning in verse 37. We're told, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. So here we see down from this glorious place of heavenly beauty, they come down into this dark valley of despair. Down from this dazzling drama of the eternal kingdom, they enter back into this troubled, corrupt, wicked, painful reality of life in a fallen, sin-stained world out of the realm of holy God into the realm of satanic demons and sinful humanity. Believers, have you ever experienced this? You ever go to a retreat through your church or you attend a wonderful worship-filled service and you're there with God's people the community of people are there and you're worshiping God together and you can just feel the presence of God. People are confessing sin. God is, is speaking through his word and you're just on a mountaintop and then you leave that place or you leave that retreat and immediately you're, you're right back into the broken relationships you left behind when you went or, or you, you enter right back into a sinful situation and immediately you're brought back to the reality reality of life in a fallen world. That's how I picture it was for Peter, James, 
and John. You know, it's important in these moments when we're in the valley to remember the lessons that we receive from Christ on the mountaintops. Those lessons on the mountaintops are meant to help us maneuver through life in this sinful world. H.A. Ironside in his commentary on Luke said this, The mountaintop experiences are intended by God to fit us for our part in ministering in this fallen world. That's what Christ is going to call for here. For them to look upon Him and and believe in what He has taught them in the midst of difficulties in life. That's what God is, is calling for when they're on the mountain of transfiguration when He tells Peter, James, and John, this is my Son, this is my chosen one. Listen to Him. You need Him. I sent Him to you for this reason. Look to Him and listen to Him. Why? Because the world is wrecked and people are broken. Listen, broken sinners in a fallen world need a perfect Savior. And that is what God has provided for us in sending us His Son. Notice here, this is a dark and desperate situation they enter into. When when Jesus and His three come down from the mountain, they're, they're met by a great crowd and the other disciples are there and we're told that a man in the crowd cries out to Jesus and he says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only son. The Spirit has seized him and, and, and a demon cries out through him and causes him to shake and foam at the mouth. He's destroying my son. He hardly ever leaves him. Parents, can you imagine your only child going through something like that? We're told in Matthew's account that this demon was throwing this man down into fire and into water. I imagine he couldn't sleep at night worried about his son. And notice, it's his only child. Luke highlights this kind of situation for us again and again. Remember earlier in Luke when we're told about the widow from Nain who lost her only son and Jesus and his followers, they they encounter this funeral procession and Jesus goes and he raises this widow's only son back to life and he gives him back to her. Later on, we learn about Jairus' only daughter who is sick and she dies and Jesus enters into his house, into that situation. He brings her back from death to life and gives her back to her father. And here we see, we're going to see him care for this man's son as well. Luke shows the great compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ here. This man is desperate. His his only son is being crushed by this violent demon which causes some to ask the question, why? Why do Satan and his demons do this? Why do they tempt us, deceive us, want to enslave us? The answer is very, very simple. They want to thwart the purposes of God for mankind and they want to destroy mankind. That's their aim. J.I. Packer said this. Look at this quote. Satan has no constructive purpose of his own. His tactics are simply to thwart God and destroy men. This 
father's son is being destroyed by this demonic entity. And he is counting down the minutes for Jesus to enter back into the scene, for him to descend down this mountain so that he can come to him. He's gone to Jesus' disciples, but they were of no help. Look at verse 40. He tells Jesus, And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, who is Jesus rebuking here? Commentators have debated this. I think we can rule out the Father in this story. He, no doubt, is showing faith, going to Christ's disciples and later going to Jesus, pleading to Christ on behalf of his son. We do know that there is a, a greater crowd that is gathered. We learn that from the other accounts, and they certainly had their doubts about Jesus. But because the father of this demon-possessed son mentions the inability of the disciples in particular, I believe Jesus is referring to them here in the company of the larger group. We're told in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 17, verses 19 through 20, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. Now remember back at the beginning of Luke 9, what Jesus did for his disciples? He commissions them and then he promises to give them his power. He empowers them. He gives them power over the demonic realm. All demons were told. And he gives them the power to heal as well as they go out and proclaim this message of his kingdom. Look at it with me. Luke 9, 1 through 2. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Jesus called them. He gave them power. For a time we're told they were faithful and successful in what God had called for them to do. But when dealing with this difficult situation, with this violent demon, they lacked faith and they failed this man. They, they were not lacking in their calling. They were not lacking in their ability. They were lacking in their faith. They were acting like the, the faithless and twisted generation around them. Christ gave them power over all demons. And guess what? I looked up the word all. You know what it means in the Greek? It means all. All demons. All means all. All they had to do was listen to Christ, believe upon Him, and act upon that belief. That's what faith is. Faith is, is believing in and acting upon what God has said because He has said it. Believers, are you living your lives by faith in Jesus Christ? Are you spending your days studying His Word? Are you believing in what you read, the promises found there, and are you acting upon that belief? And I'm not talking about casting out demons. Some place all of their focus here, and they, de they develop this elaborate teaching on that practice, but that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is that Jesus' disciples are to live their lives by faith. They are to believe and act upon what God has said because He has said it. 
Paul says in Romans 1, 17, that the righteous are to live by faith. What a wonderful word for us this morning, believers. When tough times come, when the storms of this life hit, are you living by faith? Are you living by faith today? Tough times have no doubt come. Are you trusting in God's Son? Are you relying upon His Spirit within you to give you strength? And are you remaining faithful? Are you trusting in the the fact that God is the sovereign over your troubles? And are you resting in the fact that He is working all things together for good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purposes? Is your focus upward, not inward? Are you trusting in His power instead of relying upon your own? Are you staying grounded in His Word? Are you leaning hard on His people? Are you growing closer to and more like Jesus through it? That's what we're called to do when times get tough. That's what we're to do in situations like what we're faced with today. A timely word from God. God wants us To seek Him at all times, but especially in difficult times for wisdom and direction, for courage and for comfort and for strength. He wants us to seek Him in His Word and believe His Word and act upon that belief. He wants us to not look inward, but wants us to look upward toward Him. He wants us to trust in Him. Listen, the success of our ministry in the church, the success of our ministry in our communities, the success of our ministry in our homes, the success of our ministry in life will depend on whether or not we live our lives by faith. So that's the lesson of faith learned from the marred ministry of Christ's disciples. Now let's look quickly at the majestic ministry of God's Son. Look at the end of verse 41. Jesus says to the man, bring your son here. Jesus is going to do what his disciples failed to do because of their lack of faith. But but notice, while the works of Satan and his demons are going to be destroyed by Jesus, they don't go down without a fight. Look at it again. Look at verse 42. In verse 41, he says, Bring your son here. Verse 42. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Now, we've said before, wherever God is at work, Wherever his people are faithful and fruitful, you better believe that Satan and his demons are going to push back. The enemy is going to fight back. He's not going to go down without a fight. But notice, he is no match for Christ. Look at the passage again. He says, bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But, but Jesus, showing who is really in authority and who has all power, rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back. To his father. Wonderful. Can you imagine the joy that this dad encountered in this moment? Parents, grandparents, are you burdened over the spiritual state of your children? Are you burdened 
over the, the darkness of sin in their lives, in the lives of friends and family. Maybe you, like the disciples, have unsuccessfully and faithlessly tried to handle matters in your own strength. I encourage you to do what the Father does here. Bring that person to the feet of Jesus. Plead to Christ on their behalf. Bring them before God's throne of grace and plead with the Lord to graciously draw that person to himself and transform him or her from the inside out. That is the kind of faith that pleases God. It's faith that says, God, I believe you sent your son to save sinners, and I plead with you now to save this loved one of mine. Save them today. J.C. Ryle says this in this commentary on, in his commentary on Luke. He says, there are many Christian fathers and mothers at this day who were just as miserable about their children as the man of whom we are reading. What should a father or mother do in a case like this? They should do as the man before us did. They should go to Jesus in prayer and cry to Him about their child. They should spread before that merciful Savior the tale of their sorrows and entreat Him to help, him, help them. Great is the power of prayer and intercession. The child of many prayers shall seldom be cast away. God's time of conversion may not be ours. He may think fit to prove our faith by keeping us long waiting. But so long as a child lives and a parent prays, we have no right to finally despair about that child's soul. The father in this story, did not quit on his son. He went to Jesus. He cried out to him. He pleaded on behalf of his son, and Christ healed him. And we're told they were all amazed. Look at verse 43 of Luke 9. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. They, they were amazed. They saw the greatness of God on display in God's son. The disciples' attempts to heal this man, in, in their attempts, the people saw the, the flawed and faithless efforts of man in Christ. They witnessed the, the glory and the majesty, the power, the mercy, and the grace and the love of God. Now, I want you to see something important here. Notice from these two accounts, this is really interesting. The account we looked at last week and the account we see in our text today, this story today, we see in these two accounts the work that God sent His Son to accomplish, the work of salvation perfectly illustrated in these two accounts. Think about it. The gospel tells us that Christ came from heaven to earth to save mankind from sin and death. Think about Christ's activities in the last two stories. He left Glory's Mountain he entered into sin's dark valley to seek and to save those from the valley of death and bring them to glory's peak. That's the work Christ came to accomplish. That's the gospel. Now, how is Christ going to accomplish this work? Not in the way his disciples were expecting, for sure. Notice point number three. We, we've looked at the marred ministry 
of Christ's disciples, the majestic ministry of God's Son. Now let's end by discussing the marvelous mystery of God's gospel. The marvelous mystery of God's gospel. Look at verse 43. But while they're all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew 17, 22 through 23, we're told Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. In the midst of this astonishment over Jesus' greatness and the crowd marveling in everything he was doing, marveling over his great power, over demons and his miraculous work in the lives of those who were sick, in the midst of some probably thinking, hey, there's more of this miraculous work to come. Jesus gives his disciples and the greater crowd a sobering message. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. We've said this in the past. Many of Jesus' disciples, they believed he was the Messiah. But again, they had been influenced by the popular opinions of the day. They had been influenced by their faithless and wicked generation. They, They selfishly believed the Messiah was going to be this mighty military leader, this political liberator who was going to come in and do their bidding and flex his muscles and overthrow corrupt regimes and establish Jewish dominance. Jesus tells them that's not the plan for God's Messiah. He has been sent to die and to be raised to save mankind from sin and death. Well, that was hard for the disciples to hear. It would take great faith to believe it, and they struggle with it at first. They, they struggle with taking God at His word and believing on that word and acting upon that belief. Look at verse 45 of Luke 9. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, this verse of Scripture has been debated in Scripture uh, by, by other commentators. It's been debated quite a bit. Some argue that that God is the one supernaturally keeping them and and blinding them from seeing and perceiving this this truth until the work of His Messiah is completed. Now we know God is sovereign in salvation. He is the one who gives eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand and all praise goes to Him when someone responds in repentance and faith. But the question I want to ask is this, is Luke pointing out a special work of prevention by God here to keep His disciples from seeing. Some believe that He is. I don't interpret it in that way for a few reasons. One, Christ pleads with them to hear. He says, let these words sink into your ears. He tells them multiple times in multiple ways that that He is going to suffer and die and rise again. And the fact that we're told that they were afraid to ask Him more about this teaching seems to indicate that He would have shared more with them had they have asked. Also, we're told later at Jesus' resurrection when the angels appear to the women in the empty tomb, they say, don't you remember Christ told you this? 
Later on, when Jesus is with his disciples, he takes them to the scripture. He shows them these things, this work that he was sent to do, and he brings understanding to their mind through that. I think Luke is simply describing the disciples' inability to understand because of their preconceived ideas about who the Messiah is, because of their lack of faith, because they're so troubled by this idea of a suffering Messiah. It just did not make sense to them, so much so that we're told they were afraid to ask him about this. They didn't want to ask any more about it. When they thought about who the Messiah was going to be, they were, they were setting their minds on who they wanted him to be rather than who he said he was. Instead of believing in what God had said, because God had said it, they chose their version. They saw no benefit in a dead Messiah, even though Jesus told them it was good for him to go out in this way. They preferred their version better and chose to believe that lie rather than the truth. How often do we respond to difficult teachings found in God's Word in this way? We will either add to it, take away from it, explain it away. We'll even get our favorite verses and we'll pin those against the verses we don't like, trying to disprove them, doing all sorts of sinful things. We do that. We choose to believe a lie rather than the truth, and we make a mess of the message and the ministry. For example, here's one for you. God tells believers in His Word clearly the Christian life is difficult. It's filled with sorrow and suffering, pain and death, losses and crosses, yet there are some who, when they describe the Christian life, they explain it as a life of sunshine and rainbows. They prefer their version instead of the truth. They spread those lies and they hinder the ministry and the message. God tells us life is hard because the world is broken and man is fallen. That's why this man's son in this story is demon-possessed. That's why God's son, when he sent him, he was rejected and killed. But we also learn while the world is messed up because of the sin in our lives and world, while we've made a mess of things, God is he makes it clear in his word that he is at work in the midst of the mess in this world, in this broken and in fallen sin-stained world. God is at work for his purposes and for his glory. What a wonderful word for us today, believers. I've seen him at work in this way in the past few weeks, in the darkest of times. He does the greatest and most glorious of works. Just think about Calvary, the darkest event in history. And we see God at work at Calvary in the darkest of times doing the greatest and most glorious of works, bringing about our salvation. While the, the Son of Man was delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, God raised Him up on the third day. And, and through His death and resurrection, there is forgiveness of sin, restoration to God, life eternal through repentance of sin and faith in Christ. Marvelous work in the darkest of times. 
The question I want to leave you with today is this. Are you trusting in this work alone for your salvation? Have you placed your faith and trust in, in Christ as your great Lord and Savior? Again, we're told in that great chapter of faith, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews eleven six tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. To be saved, we must believe on Jesus. We must, in faith, draw near to God through Christ, repenting of our sin and trusting in Him alone for our salvation. Is Christ Lord of your life? Have you laid your life down? Are you trusting in the life He lived, the death He died in His resurrection alone for your right standing with God? If not, I invite you to today. Turn from your sin, give your life up and over to Jesus, and be saved. Let's pray together.